everybody, and welcome to the Chiluminati Podcast, episode 136, or yeah, six, not seven. I wanted to, I'm going to double check it's myself right now. It's 136, but officially, it's episode 2022, the first episode of the year. 2022, two, 2022, two, 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 I'm two, 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 Campbell. <laughs> Can we, I'm one of your hosts, by the way, Mike Martin, joined by the Sherlock and Moriarty of L.A., oh, Jesse and Alex. What happened to us? We jumped off the Hollywood sign together and disappeared. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> now here we are. And then we, they just found us down at Tito's Tacos eating <laughs> disgusting food together. And neither of us are detectives and we just smoke a bunch of weed. Yeah. yeah. We, did ju- we did jump off the Hollywood sign, though. That happened. Yeah. yeah that was, that was tight. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, yo, I just learned, boys, that they're making a serious remake of Fresh Prince. Did you know this? What do you mean I a serious the trailer? Dude, like a dramatic like focused version of Fre- like a family We're, drama, like a Disney no, no, channel. No, 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 no. Like, like a traumatic a, dram- drama. Imagine the scenario of like in West Philadelphia, born and raised and on that playground where he spent most of his days, like a shootout goes down <laughs> and he is brought to Beverly Hills where it, like Carlton and like everyone's there except it's it, it is serious where it's like so Will, every episode is like the episode with Will's dad yes but <laughs> done in the cinema, cinematic style of like a, like a modern, single camera tv show yes okay uh does it have the same theme song <laughs> I, I'm I, gonna assume no. Does Jeff yeah. still get chucked out of the house by no, his? I don't think DJ Jazzy Jeff is in this. I think DJ Jazzy What's Jeff is probably struggling with a heroin addiction in this episode. All, all you need to know is is that it's a remake where it's all like, yeah, you know that one episode that got really topical and wasn't all that funny, but like super serious. That the one where Will's Listen, like, why doesn't he love me? Right. That is. Yeah. That is what this entire I'm, series look, is. I'm Crazy. fine with it. I'm fine with it. I'm glad so, that people are working and making, you know, sure. TV it's, shows. I just think it's, it's so like, weird. There's a million stories you could have told. Yeah. Why is this the one you remade? And then you remade. It's just they, very it's, bizarre. It's, it, you know what it is? And let me just be real just for a second. Capitalism has destroyed all inventiveness. <laughs> they wanted to make a show about just, you know, people living their lives and instead to get it made they had to get will smith involved and get him to just sell sell the show that he made 35 years ago up the river to make something else just so that somebody will watch it because anything that anybody makes you have to tie it to something because otherwise you won't watch it because everything ended in like 1999 there's not been anything new since 1999 y2k except for inception actually happened except for inception uh and they they didn't make a sequel to that 40 years from now when our show's long dead, but we need to make money because we're all poor for varying different reasons. How are we going to create a serious version of the Chiluminati podcast? Like, how do we make this dramatic and dark? It's like succession, but it's like with us instead. (laughs) And uh, Jesse's played by Brian Cox instead of Jesse Cox. Well, that makes sense. And I'm uh, I don't know who I would be. I, I haven't really watched succession. Uh, I want to be played by the by the guy who plays Charlie Day, but he's got to be serious. Charlie Day. 
He, oh yeah, yeah, that guy. No, uh, <laughs> that guy. That was whatever character he plays on his TV show. Always sunny. No, yeah. Mathis, I don't think that's you. I no? think right. you are. If any character, you are definitely uh, Home Alone's brother. Home Alone's Which brother, one? Kieran yeah. Culkin. You're Kieran Culkin. Oh, like IRL brother? Yeah, like yeah. But, but okay. like in the show, you're Kieran Culkin. Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't know. Is that a good I, thing? I've never seen Succession. So I mean, I don't know. fantastic actor. Yeah, I don't know that much about sure. the show. I, I I hope to watch it someday. That's my uh, that's my feelings about Succession. I, I can't watch good shows. I've got Boba Fett to watch. Boba Fett is fine. Yes, fine is exactly is how a, I would describe it. It is a trip down the reasons why I don't do a Star Wars podcast anymore. It's like <laughs> if I had access to my childhood memories and wishes and dreams, but I had to go through them with a with a with a nun next to me. Uh, yes. To make yeah. sure everything was okay. Uh, <laughs> guys, I want to segue into the episode, but first I need to segue into us shilling for our Patreon. It's a great thing. It keeps the show alive. I want you guys to go there and support us on it because the more you do that, the more this becomes my job. You know what I mean? Just think about it. All the stuff that you silently wish that we would do for you for free, we can. If you head to our Patreon and contribute a little money and in return, it's not like you just throw money into a hole and pray for it to do something like, you know, taxes. This is real stuff. This is real rewards instantly. 15 minutes more Chiluminati every week. 15 minutes for every Chiluminati since like episode 50 or something like that. 15 extra minutes of show for every episode. We're not even close to cut up. On on uh, no, there's like thirty on the, exclusive on the minisodes on the Patreon right yeah, now. Yeah, it's insane. So head over there, check it out. There's art, pre-sale for all our merch, all kinds of great stuff. You get it to our Discord. It's a great thing, and it keeps the lights on, keeps us working. And the more it grows, the more the show grows. The more we can do, the bigger our scope gets. So please head down there if you want us to do cool stuff. Because I have a whole iPhone notepad worth of great ideas. Uh, to act on so so please so please make your way to patreon.com slash chiluminati pod where uh today uh after this episode i'm going to be talking about i'm going to be continuing our soft canada theme that this episode has by accident (laughs) I, i noticed as i was writing the outline that there's like a soft canada essence to this episode I don't know how it happened, but it's there. So that Canada theme continues in today's mini-sode. Guys, we're back in the first episode of the the year, having covered now 11 of what I'm going to call mini-mysteries. 11 of 22 to celebrate the year 2022. If you follow my meaning, we've knocked out one of the twos from the 22 at the end of 2022 at the beginning of the year 2022 and also in celebration of it right we are now exactly halfway through the list so thank you for joining me for the very first episode of the year and now let's get to it because we still have 11 mini mysteries to go and if i'm being honest some of them are a little long i'm a little worried uh (laughs) we may have yet another part to go yeah there may be more parts than you even you can even 
imagine. Uh, shout outs <laughs> to D Magazine, Texas Monthly, CBC News, that's Canada, menshealth.com, Joe Atherton from the UK, Hammerson Peters, Snopes.com, HuffPost Entertainment, The New York Times, NBC New York, mentalfloss.com, and as always, www.wikipedia.org, which I promise I know how to use very, very cleverly. Also, like I said last week, this is all done in the nature of fun and to explore the way strange stories are shared on the internet and across time and space. So please take everything with a cosmic grain of space salt and uh, obligatory content warning. No spoilers. There's going to be some adult themes in this episode, including graphic violence, a lot, a lot of suicide and talking about suicide, murder, sexual abuse. It's all here. All the guys. So please. All of them. All the guys. Please be kind to yourself. Proceed at your own risk. Don't do that to yourself just because I'm so charming. It's going to get you. And we're talking about the suicide right away. So get ready. It's number 12. The Curse of the Black Lords is the name of this segment. And I want to shout out to my first Canadian thing of the day. Amanda Flagg for giving me the tip on this story. She's an incredible human and illustrator and friend of mine uh, who, if you're a Chiluminati fan, you know, because she made the cutie cryptids like Mothman and the Flatwood Kid cutie pins that we have made in the past. So that's Amanda. Shout outs to Amanda. Um, all right. You guys ready for this biz? I was born ready for this biz. Let's I can't wait. Let's get into the curse of the Black Lords. It began when she was four years old in the early 1940s, taking a break in the shade of a tree while picking cotton during the insanely hot summers down in Fort Stockton, Texas. Three men appeared to her. She wasn't sure if it was a vision or if it was real. They were wearing beautiful, lavish robes unlike any she'd ever seen. They told her good things, though maybe they were too complex for a four-year-old to really understand. And they told her that as long as she had the willpower... She could achieve anything she could think of. They told her thinking about God would help her through her life. And they told her that nobody could take this from her and to keep it all a secret. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. They said no one who stood in her way could see them. Just these, these three dudes in the robes were just for her to see and just for her to talk to. And nobody, not even the bullies at school or her drunk ass dad or anybody like that, could get in the way of her secret relationship with these men and with God, even when she had no money for clothes or when her sister was stillborn or when her mom got tuberculosis. Okay. Uh, she thought about God a lot through all of that because of these visions. And when she was nine years old at an orphanage uh, back east a ways in Round Rock, Texas, the visions came back and the three men in robes returned and she prayed and she saw Jesus and eventually, she found a German nun who was apparently a Lutheran who taught her some stuff that she did not know. Uh, the woman taught her about earth, about water, about air, and about fire. She taught her about ether. She taught her how to meditate and access visions of any point in time or space, like an interactive map. She taught her how her dead little sister would be reincarnated into another life, and it made her feel good. She decided she was the reincarnation of St. Teresa of Avila, a mystic philosopher and patron saint of Spain herself, uh, by accessing what? that spiritual <clears throat> network. 
What? Uh, that is a this leap. Is very clear. This is, we're accessing the spiritual network and it makes us feel good. Yeah. It's like uh, Tom Cruise and uh, Minority Report, but spiritual. Uh, spiritual wh- Minority Report. Yeah. And uh, two years later, when she was finally adopted in 1949 by parents whose own daughter had also died of tuberculosis, just like her mom, she finally received the name Terry Lee Benson at 11 years old, along with something resembling a normal suburban life. However, in 1953, just a month after her 15th birthday, rebelling against an overbearing mother, she ran away to Oklahoma and married the 18-year-old high school dropout, John Wilder, because Oklahoma was the closest place you could go to get married when you were 15 years old. Uh, so she kind of rebelled immediately. And, I, you know, you got to kind of chalk it up to having that strange early life. Uh, but 18 months later, they had a kid. And over the next 10 years, they got a farm outside of Dallas near Redbird. They had two more kids and she lived quietly, growing various apple varietals together by grafting them onto the same trunk and performing traditional 50s and 60s housewife duties. Uh, So, you know, a relatively uneventful life, except for a few key divergences. Uh, However, uh, it was in 1964 that things began to change when she decided to regularly start meeting with friends on her same sort of weird spiritual wavelength to have deep and enriching conversations about life, the universe and why it's all there and how it works and who made it. And you know how this type of story goes one minute. It's trippy (laughs) chats. It's trippy chats, $2 mail order book on hypnotism Next thing you know, you're obsessed with Edgar Casey and Silva Mind Control Incorporated. And is this suddenly, what happened to Mathis? Yeah, this is basically what, what happened to him. How'd this happen to me? Wait a minute. Uh, uh, suddenly, you I'm and your saying. friends start to feel like maybe you might be a messenger from God, which is exactly right. what happened to Terry. Uh, of course. And uh, she taught people, uh, mostly quite young and impressionable high school students, uh, some slightly out there concepts to help them feel like they were in control of their lives connecting archangels to the elements and linking the Christian notion of the immortal soul with elements of reincarnation and the law of karma. And she would take them on tours of the temples of Lao Tzu and Muhammad and Jesus and Buddha on the spiritual plane via hypnotic trances. And she showed them their past and their future lives and how to access them on the minority report investigation, internet board of the spiritual realm. Uh, She would even judge whether people who were currently in relationships with each other were with their soulmate or not, which could sometimes totally rock these kids' worlds because somebody that they really trusted would be like, you guys might be in love, but you guys aren't meant to be together. So deal with that. Oh, yeah. No, I've seen Are You the One on MTV. Yeah. uh, Five seasons (laughs) worth. So I get it. Yeah. This was that, except it was like a wizard telling you i've uh, seen you know I mean, same, thing, like nine, same thing yeah 90 day fiance exactly yeah, ex- same thing. it's pretty much that uh and these high school kids really would take her seriously like one time she told them that she could float that her husband just came in and she was floating uh or that she could heal you and that she could heal her kids or that she was having visions of you dying in a car wreck and then preventing the visions by having emergency meditation sessions with you uh, or having a group meditation to help Jimi Hendrix's wayward soul find his way to heaven or whatever it may be headed Why to. Why is it always like 
celebrities. You, know you got to I mean? loop in the kids. You got to loop yeah, them in. Why is it never capitalism? Like capitalism Johnny ruined even mediums. Henderson needs to get to heaven. They had to reboot Jimi Hendrix like a like a real life IRL version of Fresh Prince in order to get kids interested <laughs> in these spiritual ideas. Uh, and eventually, sometime in the late 60s, this blossomed into a group that she called Conscious Development of Body, Mind, and Soul, and which eventually just became known colloquially as Conscious Development. This was when she started to take like 50 bucks or 100 bucks here and there for special private sessions from some of her members or have her followers offer her jewelry as an offering. And then people would be like, you got to give her that back. And then she'd like try and give it back. And they'd be like prostrate themselves and be like, no, please keep it. Keep it, master. Uh, and it just grew bigger and bigger. And it spread further and further until by the late 70s, it had fully made the leap from like chill people hanging out and talking about weird stuff to like full blown cult. And the members started getting sworn to secrecy and Terry started really manipulating their guilt and their fear and their anxiety. And the messaging started getting really, really wild. Basically, Terry was telling her core group of teachers that they were like 40 spiritual masters that were put here on this plane to help mankind ascend to the higher levels of existence and the purple realm. And that just like Jedi Knights or something like that, they would now have to actively fight in their sessions to tip the balance of the world towards good and away from evil by defeating entities known as black lords. And slowly the weekly meetings became more like battles and the teachers would bring magic items like a cup and a robe and a sword and a rod. And they represented various angels and defenses and they would wield the swords together and carry out rituals. And by the end, if you did it right, you could go back to the conscious development water cooler and brag about how many black lords you destroyed during your last session. Uh, I'm going to take a, a bunch moment. of fucking nerds yeah. made a cult. I'm going to take a moment at this time to confirm to all of you that this is not the green stone. Uh, <laughs> but uh Along those lines, here is a little quote uh, from an article about the cult from 1982 for Jesse to read, if you don't mind. I can't believe this is like, <sighs> I know you must defeat the black. But it Lord seems by way more exciting. These magical items of their curses. And then, yeah, it's more exciting. Yeah, all than the Bible proves is that people are bored and have always been bored. I'm, that's why I'm and saying they're, they're willing to buy, the this, uh, willing to buy the some dumb stuff because they're so bored. If they just rebooted the, the Bible after and these, like, added in Dr. Strange and shit that people would be all over that shit. And what do you think the chance after they curse, they cleanse the curse. They all like fucked each other after. I think probably feeling that energy you probably really do feel pretty like sexually in with everybody that's that what i'm with. saying i'm thinking this is all just a pipeline to get to the master's bedroom yeah i don't i don't uh, think that that was her thing and i think that she just liked people giving her stuff and like you must decurse <laughs> my pussy uh, what read, read that read that quote from the article with your tongue mm. go ahead during the battle, the leader and sometimes other group members often would indicate that a particular spirit was in the room with the teachers, ready to work mischief. The teachers would swing around in unison, touch their rods to their shoulders, and aim the rods towards the corner where the evil spirit lurked. 
Frequently, the attacker was someone out of favor with the group. Former members often were cited as conduits for the Black Lords. This is... You can see how this works. Yeah. Fan fiction. <laughs> this My is fan rod fiction. is pointing me in this direction. Yeah. Towards that guy who totally didn't show up for the meeting last week. He must Weird. be evil. Or he said my outfit looked bad. Let's get him. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's the conscious development cult and the story of Terry Lee Hoffman. Uh, and how she started her cult. But that alone does not a mystery make. Uh, so now let's take a look at a couple very mysterious deaths and disappearances involving people connected to Terry Hoffman and conscious development. And at the end, let's see if we think Terry Hoffman's super unlucky, just super, just hapless and unfortunate, or if something about her maybe seems a little bit off. Okay. So just follow me here. You tell me what you think. Let me see if you can Ready. see a pattern. First one. On January 31st, 1977, Terry's second husband, who was a man called Glenn Cooley, committed suicide just four days after his and Terry's divorce was finalized by overdosing on Librium and Valium, which they found in his blood. Terry explained to the cult that Glenn's death was proof that the Black Lords were poisoning their blood and that the cure for it was bloodletting. She was yes. named the sole beneficiary in a hastily written hand done will. She said that she discovered inside her personal safe. And here is the text of that will for Mathis to read right now. Uh, all right. Here it is. <clears throat> I, Glenn Cooley, give to Terry Cooley all of my property, both personal and real. This includes two boats, a 1972 Buick Limited, all jewelry and equipment for its making, all furnishes for the house on Dunhaven Road and all cash. Glenn Scott Cooley. I ask that this will uh, I ask that this last will of mine not be contested by anyone in any way for any reason in all caps. Last but not least, I give all of my love to all of my family and friends. As explanation for all this, I can't really say that I I can't really say what it is because of, but I can say what it is not because of. It is not because of divorce with Terry, past drug experiences, <laughs> inability to cope, etc. What it is, I myself know, but don't have the words for. This yeah. is so dumb. Is, <laughs> I cannot stress how dumb the, the I, 70s. Anything the 70s, could pass by anyone. The seven, this has not changed this in the last 50 worked. years, my friend. There are people like this right now. This I'm not going to start stuff on this podcast. I don't want to do that. I do. But there are people like this right now who are like, yeah. you know what? I'm going to make a million excuses for why I'm in something that's insane because oh, yeah, okay. I yeah. put my, oh my God, my brain, like I just, yeah. So this totally worked. Oh. Uh, and 13 years later, uh, after he died, a woman in the cult came forward and told the police that she and Terry had actually visited Glenn at his cabin the night of his death. And Terry told her that Glenn was quote, going to the next level. And that when they got to his cabin, he was still alive, but he had already taken the drugs. What? No yeah. way. Uh, what? Yeah. So that's what? so that's a they new were there the night they died. That's yeah. Wildly surprising. 13 years later, that came out. Second one, which actually ends up being three people I by just, the end. Yeah, I just I'm sorry. I know, it's like no, George the cop has got the suicide letter and he's like, no, no, right here. Uh, definitely wasn't because of Terry. Oh, checks out to me. Give her all the money, Fred. Yeah. Like, the, no, no attempt at like, I'm a hundred percent further there. into this weird paragraph that specifically like a freaking terrible movie points out. Wasn't because of Terry though. Yeah, I know. Uh, 
Second one actually ends up being three people by the end. Sandra Cleaver and her daughter Devereaux had been followers of Terry's for years. And sometime in the mid-70s, according to one report, Sandra, the mother, became distant and fearful of her daughter once Terry Hoffman told her that she could see that Devereaux was constantly attacking her with negative vibes and dark energy. Uh, That's like, she's going to fucking kill me, dude. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Nevertheless, in February of 1979, they were on a Hawaiian vacation together with a friend called Lynn. So it was Sandra, Devereaux, and Lynn. Uh, And Lynn, uh, one day on the vacation, decided to stay ashore while Sandra and her daughter went out one day in a inflatable raft. Oh, God. According to Sandra's version of events, a couple crazy waves flipped the raft and split them up. And unfortunately, Devereaux was dashed to death on the coral below and came out of the water dead. Uh, and strangely, uh, when Devereaux's father arrived in Hawaii the next day, uh, he came like as soon as he heard that she had died. Uh, he found Terry Hoffman was already there in the hospital with Sandra. And back at home, police discovered that just before she left on her vacation, uh, Devereaux wrote a will leaving almost everything to Terry, including her sizable trust fund, which was like 125K. And uh, the will was like, picked up like the the will was like fulfilled by a mysterious woman unnamed woman who came down with a document like the morning after her death or something at the courthouse it sounds like is there enough in this mini mystery to one day crack it into like a full mystery well you know here's the thing maybe i already did because after this (laughs) happened after Devereaux died sandra did not back down on her connection to terry in fact she doubled down on conscious development transferred her house's ownership to Terry and took out a huge life insurance policy on herself and became super, super close friends with her 77 year old housekeeper, Wheezy Watson, uh, Louise <laughs> Wheezy Watson. I uh, love that. Wheezy Dude, Watson. the names in this, the, the names in this just are wild. Two years later in September of 1981, while on a trip to visit Sandra's sister in Colorado, Sandra drove her and Louise Wheezy Watson straight off a cliff in her car. Uh, and after they get the police came and checked it out, they saw that there was no attempt by the car to turn away from the edge or hit the brakes. And they both died instantly after their bodies had been thrown from inside the car. Uh, I don't have to tell you, you could probably guess that Sandra left literally everything in her that she owned to Terry as well. But also even Louise, who wasn't even in the cult, as far as anybody knew, signed a will three months earlier, which also left everything that she owned to (laughs) Terry Hoffman. Wheezy Louise left everything to Terry Watson. Yeah, pretty weird. Oh, my God. Apparently. Yeah, I. And and at this point, people finally started to notice Sandra's brother, a man called Kroom Beatty the Fourth, took it out. Uh, he, he took he took the case to court on the family's behalf, saying Terry was exerting some kind of strange control over Sandra and manipulating her into writing the will. And though Terry publicly denied it, denied doing this, she actually did end up settling the case outside of court. And three of the four people who testified on her behalf also eventually ended up committing suicide. Don't know. What oh, that's my about. God. Yeah. This is like textbook cult leader bullshit. Yeah. So now let's talk about the third case. In August of 1979, Terry's son from her first marriage, Kenneth Wilder, fell through a hole in the floor of an unfinished building he was working on because he was like a building contractor, and he died, uh, leaving his mother a sizable sum of money. This normally wouldn't be 
that big of a deal. Like the accident was pretty clearly an accident. But according to various articles on the subject, Terry was said to have used the death of her son to get closer to Sandra after Devereaux died. And that was like a way in for her. Uh, so that's a third case. The fourth case uh, was in April of 1987. A woman called Robin Ottstadt called her ex-husband on the phone and told him that she had contracted a terminal viral hepatitis from a banana peel. And he convinced her that she should go get a blood test because this was really fucking weird for him to get over the phone as news out of the blue. <laughs> a few hours after the test, uh, she went over to visit Terry Hoffman. And later that night, the 42-year-old woman went home, put a 38 revolver in her mouth and pulled the trigger. Here is her suicide note uh, for Jesse to read. I this where all right I'm not it's gonna ask where you get these stories bit, you read this um, quote it's reminding me a little bit of Heaven's Gate yes where he very much framed and one day we'll do Heaven's Gate but like he very much framed the this kind of similarly where the body is a vessel and there's a higher place to go and that if you just like let your vessel go you'll ascend and it's, it's like she's taking that and using it like that guy believed every word every word he said he killed himself along with everybody else yes. she sounds like she's found the key to instant wealth and she's just like weaseling away at it as often as she yeah, can. And I think this suicide note will make things very clear about what the vibe was. There. Oh God. All right. <laughs> okay. So just, uh, I'm going to read this normally, but I want you to know it's not written normally. Uh, I'm apologizing to Terry 3000 times a week on all levels. Of my being for the highly offensive, rude and vulgar comments made to her last week. I love her dearly and beg her <laughs> forgiveness someday. Yeah, so that was her suicide note. Uh, and just to give you an she idea wrote of how three thousand X A W K, just dude, put yeah. that out there. Yeah, it was like a, like a scribbled note. You know what I mean? It like wasn't fancied up. Very strange. And just to give you an idea of how wild and deep this control goes, here's another quote for Mathis to read from a fantastic article about this case that I found from 1990 in Texas Monthly. This is this is wild. Uh, it says Terry's strangest influence on Robin Ottstadt took another form. She played matchmaker between the 41 year old school counselor and an invisible CIA agent. By 1986, Robin Ottstadt had a close, intimate relationship with a supernatural patriot named George G. Oh, dude, ghost CIA is like it's my end. Goal. I don't even understand. I don't even Me understand. either. But that'll be the yeah, that'll be like if I could see a ghost CIA yeah. agent. That bizarre love affair is detailed in journals later reviewed by investigators, which Robin kept for years. In the books, Robin describes dates and romantic dinners, heart-to-heart -heart talks, poignant love letters, even a camping trip that, trip that she took with George D. out to Colorado. A conscious development and followers have told investigators that Terry spoke mysteriously of her connections to the CIA. She claimed to have been training dematerialized government agents and using her powers to protect them. Just as Terry's followers came to believe in masters whom no one could see, masters whom they came to regard as quite real, so Robin came to have an invisible lover. The couple could never marry for reasons of national security. A great, a, a great excuse, by the way, to not yeah. marry a ghost CIA yeah. agent. And this is this is a high school counselor like who was in this world. This was their reality every day was that they were in love with an invisible government agent that they couldn't be be with and the whole communication was like 
through Terry. You know what I mean? It's like super, mm-hmm. super strange. Uh, Dematerializing government agents. Like, yeah, I love that. She like just in an office with two CIA agents heavily focusing on one as he slowly dusts piece by piece. And she's like, yeah, dematerialize. And the worst part about all this is that if Robin had just waited for the results of her blood test, she would have found that the doctors found no signs of illness in her body at all and probably wouldn't have even killed herself. Uh, pretty nuts. Uh, the fifth case we're going to talk about is Charles Southern Jr. He was an English professor at a junior college who was high up in the group and became closely associated with Terry as a meditation and spiritualism teacher for conscious development. In early 1987, he was found on the street wandering around in Chicago, uh, where conscious development had recently expanded in Illinois, holding a newspaper and saying, I lived for art over and over. And he was hospitalized for fear he was acting suicidal. Like Edgar Allan Poe vibes found this guy rambling to himself on the street outside. He received daily visits from both his concerned mother and two cult members while he was in the hospital. And while he soon was able to get back to a normal state of mind and resume normal life and stayed inside the cult. Shortly thereafter, he was said to have had having he was said to have had a falling out with Terry herself uh, within the cult. And that same December, when his family tried to visit him before he left on a trip to India, because he always talked about wanting to see the world and get out of his comfort zone and explore. Uh, his family was like, let's come over and hang out with you before you leave. We just want to see you. He canceled that, saying he wasn't feeling good and he wanted to be ready for his trip. So you better not come over. And uh, that was the last time anybody ever saw him. Uh, his parents went to see him after he was meant to have come back to like get an update on his trip uh, because they just assumed that he went on the trip, but they found his passport in his house in a drawer uh, unstamped in his apartment and uh, South American poison uh, was found in a drawer uh, nearby and two sloppily handwritten notes naming Terry Hoffman as a beneficiary in his will. Uh, so that was how all that was found. Is she still doing this? I know. Like, how is like how has nobody stopped this? That's yet? the fifth case. That is seven people. Uh, sixth case. One month earlier, uh, in November 1987, another cult member from Chicago, Mary Levinson, was also found dead of an overdose. Two weeks before her death, she named her ex-boyfriend, uh, who she was set up with by Terry Hoffman, as the beneficiary of her life insurance policy, and $125,000 cash went missing from her home. Uh, that's another one. Uh, seventh case, Terry's fourth husband, Don Hoffman, checked into a Marriott hotel near Irving, Texas on September 16th, 1988, where he was later found dead of a mixed drug intoxication overdose. Uh, according to a notepad at the scene and some suicide videos that he made for his family, Don believed that he had terminal cancer at the time of his death, deciding he'd rather go out on his own terms than put himself through chemo. He left, uh, all his property and possessions to Terry in his will, leaving out his children entirely. Uh, and however, again, during his autopsy, no sign of cancer or any illness at all was found. And Don's family believed Terry hypnotized and manipulated Don into killing himself. Uh, but Terry said unnamed doctors destroyed all of Don's medical records, proving that he had cancer and that the black lords were hiding signs of his cancer behind an illusion to discredit her. And so that was her counter to that explanation. Honestly, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the eighth case. Uh, four days after Don's death, Jill Bounds, 
who had allegedly been out of the church for around six years, was found beaten to death in her home, seemingly at the hands of some unknown assailant who climbed in through her window, stole some jewelry and her gun, rifled through her journal with bloody hands and ripped out a couple pages. Uh, But uh, contrary to that story of not being with the church for six years, she did meet with Terry about something a few months before her death. And the way the screen and the frame of her window were removed and there was a ceramic owl on the inside that had been moved aside, it made it very hard to imagine that the window wasn't open from the inside, like during the crime somehow. And once again, the family totally blames Terry Hoffman. Uh, As I would. (laughs) And finally, the ninth case, David and Glenda Goodman, married couple. David was a professor at Southern Methodist University. Glenda was a vice president at Terry's own perfume and oils company. And both were part of the cult from way back before it was even really a cult. So these were like some lifers, like those fans that you get on Twitch before you really get a following and they somehow become your mods. It was like that vibe. Uh, David was even a character witness in the trial for Sandra's estate from earlier in the story that I was talking about. That's how close he was. Anyway, they were found in their converted garage den living room by their neighbor about five weeks after seemingly shooting each other in the head at the same time with two guns in a ritualistic suicide. Um, Terry tried to distance herself from the Goodmans at the time, saying that they hadn't really been close the previous few months, though. And this was in 1989. Remember, in 1987 and 88, they had given Terry over one hundred and ten thousand dollars. And in writing found around their home, it seemed clear that Terry's private sessions had convinced them that they had undergone a transformation and that they should practice their shooting because, quote, the way is clear to get high energies. It's like this. You are about to be joined in marriage between your physical self and your spirit. All is in readiness. The date is set for October 20th, which is pretty much smack in the middle of the time frame in which police placed their death. So what they did was they planned on doing it for months and then they did it. And then nobody found him for five weeks. Uh, Anyway, a criminal investigation was finally carried out by the Dallas DA in January of 1990, as apparently the Goodman case was the one that finally tipped everything over the edge in the media. But because of the premise of mind control as a tool of murder, after four years of trying, no evidence was found linking Terry Hoffman to the deaths. Uh, However, she did serve one year of a 16 month bankruptcy fraud sentence in May of 1994. But since then, she changed her name and faded out of public life before finally passing away in 2015. I don't think we'll ever get a clear answer on what happened uh, here with these people for sure. But I will leave you with these words of wisdom from her obituary with Jesse. We'll read for you now. And they are quite something. <laughs> I can't I wait. Say. Yeah. <laughs> Super excited. What would one say was her greatest legacy, her writings, her lectures, her photographic work? I would say the notion and the absorption of vibratory frequency, each being or substance having a specific frequency. She gave us the opportunity to experience many different vibratory frequencies so that the next time we are exposed to a being situation, or an energy, we can now attune to it and recognize it them because she presented those new vibratory frequencies to us. That has been truly a gift from God. So our leader has left us on the physio astral, uh, but nevertheless still exists on all other levels. Thank you for all your love, tutelage, and care until we meet again. And that is the curse. Of the Black Lords, number 
12 of 22. <laughs> 12? <laughs> that was... That was what? Oh. <laughs> oh, my God. oh my God! We're gonna be here all year. This uh, is this is it. This is the rest of the podcast. It'd be a great prank <laughs> to do this until 2023. Uh, oh my God! <laughs> number thirteen is called Buried Pirates Treasure. I can't believe we're just moving on so quickly. Number thirteen. <laughs> that story you just told. Insane. It was written by Stephanie Myers. It's yeah. not real. I know. It I is know. nonsense. The vibratory frequencies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. She lot, she showed so many of them to us, and now we can oh recognize them or something. Next one's called Barry. $90, yeah. Next one's called Barry Pirates frequency. Treasure. This is part of our Canada series, part two of the Canada connection. The next one is a very old story, and over time, a lot of the specifics have been up for debate, especially concerning some characters' names and ages, but for the sake of like understanding the allure of this place in the story. I'm going to tell it the way most people know it. Just understand that it's more of an oral tradition type of story than a historical record type of story. Uh, So here we go. This story I'm going to tell you now was published in 1857 originally, but it takes place all the way back in 1795 when a young man called Daniel McGinnis, who was just 16 years old, was out on a fishing expedition on what is now a place called Oak Island. It's about 140 acres. Uh, Today, it's privately owned, and you can find it just off the south coast of Nova Scotia, Canada, 200 meters into the water in a place called Mahone Bay. Okay, so this is just like north of New York a bit. Uh, As he made his way out towards the fishing spot, Daniel found a tree in a clearing, which he thought looked a little strange. And when he got closer, he decided that at one point, somebody probably used this to anchor a rope and tackle like you would if you were lowering something into a hole. And sure enough, when he investigated the base of the tree, he discovered a depression in the ground about 15 feet across, uh, which piqued his interest. Right now, I I know they didn't have as many streaming services in 1795 as they do now, but I believe apparently that Daniel McGinnis was a little bit into one piece because the first place his mind went when he saw this hole in 1795 was, yo, that's probably a secret hiding place for pirates treasure. So I'm not sure whether he stayed and got fish or not that day, but uh, he must have been hype as hell because the next morning he came back again with his two similarly young friends, Anthony Vaughn and John Smith, and a bunch of pickaxes and shovels, pickaxes and shovels, good Lord, and started digging. And almost immediately seems uh, things seemed pretty promising. Uh, first, they noticed that the hole they were digging in still had hard sides uh, that you could still see marks from previous pickaxes in. Uh as you know, as they started going down in the depression uh, and once they were 1.2 meters down, they ran into a layer of flagstone, which to them seemed like a sign that the thing was intentionally dug. And when they pulled out the flagstone and dug deeper, they found layers of packed logs at three meters down, six meters down and nine meters down like depth markers. Right. Uh, so at this point, they're like, shit, we've dug a really deep hole. This sucks. Let's come back with better gear. And they left. Uh, at that point. And I guess it's true what they say about life moving way slower back in the day because they didn't come back for nine fucking years. Uh, oh my which is God. nuts. Uh, but they were smart about it. And this time they came with funding from a local business guy who was called, and I'm kidding you, this is not, this is not a fake name. His name was Simeon Linz. And an actual real digging crew came with them because they had the funding. Uh, and they actually started some legit excavation with the promise that everyone working would get a cut if they found something nice down there. And uh, anyway, they kept digging down, found even more log layers, 12 meters down, 15 meters down, 18 meters down, except at 18 meters, it was matted with putty and coconut fibers, too. And then three more meters down at 21 meters, they found a platform of solid oak, which really seemed 
promising. And then also at 24 meters down. So every time three meters, also another layer, this time sealed with putty. Uh, so they're like just getting more and more hype as they're digging down all these people. And then finally at 27 meters, the thing that really felt like the bl- the breakthrough came out of the hole. The story goes that instead of more wood this time, there was a stone tablet and that the stone was not native to the re- region and that on the tablet was an enciphered inscription. However, nobody could read it or translate it. So they just kept it. And eventually uh, one of the three guys, John Smith, used it as a piece of like fireplace building stone in his house uh and he turned the the inscription out so you could read it and just as like a fun memento and they just kept on digging until they found another layer of wood three more meters down however by the time they hit that piece of wood and not a piece of treasure it was dark on a saturday night and it was getting pretty wet down in the hole because they're on an island that again is just barely off the coast things are getting muddy so they pack up they go home they took sunday off because god and by the time they came back on monday The hole had filled all the way back up to the 10 meter mark with water and it was impossible to pump the water out. uh, So the digging had to stop for like a year and uh, they regrouped. They made a new plan. uh, And when they came back, the water was still. Why was it impossible to pump the water out? Just because it was fucking 1795 or 1806 and they didn't have the money to do that. Uh, You know, this is like still like. It's this this island is 140 acres. This is off the coast like, of Nova now, Scotia. I mean, understood, understood, look, understood. But in that span of a year, couldn't you like, all right, boys, get buckets. You know yeah, what but, I mean? Like, but it's it again, it's like 27 meters down into a hole. The water goes right. So it's yeah. and and and, the, and it's already 30 meters down. I mean, I'm sorry, 10 meters down to water. So you're 30 feet into a hole. But like, what only else do these people around. do with their time during the 1700s? Just like, I don't put know. it out I, there. I wish I, wish I could tell you. Put it out there. I don't know. Uh, but this <laughs> is up to, this they is nothing. They got I, drunk. I, I'm with you. They read books. They should have worked and harder. And created They didn't read. That's a lie. Barely anyone read books. Dude, they just got drunk and ate bread and that like shitty soup. Me. That sounds fantastic to me. All right. They fucked a ton. I'm into it. Everything you're saying sounds better than digging water out of a fucking hole. Uh, but yeah uh so they couldn't do it they took a break for a year uh when they came back the water was still there so they tried to come up with a plan to like figure out the water situation so they dug a side hole down 33 and a half meters to the side of the hole and the idea was that they were going to tunnel through and like drain the water out to the side and like be able to get back at their original hole uh but it didn't work the whole thing collapsed when they tried to dig through. Uh, some people almost died and it was like, they were like, you know what? Fuck this. So they gave up for like a really long time. Uh, and that was where it like just stayed for a little bit. Uh, but once the story was published a couple of decades later, the thing kind of went viral again. Like I said, in like the in the mid 1850s when it was first published and people were seriously interested in digging that stone slab out of this dude's fireplace. Right. Because that was the that was the detail of the story that everybody linked like linked onto, and they were like, "Well, what about the fucking secret code on the stone?" Right. So apparently, in 1850, there was actually an account of somebody seeing the stone built into the fireplace and describing it as having quote some crudely cut letters, figures, or characters upon it. I cannot recollect which, but they appear as if they had been scraped out by a blunt instrument rather than cut with a sharp one. Uh, so if you imagine like taking a rock and scraping a message onto the concrete or like onto the asphalt. Mm. I think that's what they're trying to say there. Uh, But when they went back in 1964 to actually get the stone from the fireplace, 
they found that the owners of the house and it was John Smith's house, but, but it was many years later now. So whoever had like gotten this house since then, they built like a wooden extensioner out around the fireplace and the part where the stone one uh, was, was now covered. Uh, so they couldn't get to it because it was just like somebody's house. And they were like, no, get the fuck out of my house. Uh, so that's where it stayed until 1893 when somebody was finally able to actually take the fireplace apart and cut out the stone. Uh, and here's a quote about that for Mathis to read right here. Jefferson W. McDonald, who first mentioned Oak Island to me in 1893, worked under George Mitchell. Mr. McDonald, who was a carpenter by trade, also told of taking down a partition in Smith's house in order in order that he, with others, might examine the characters cut on the stone used in the fireplace in the house. The characters were there all right, but no person present could decipher them. Yeah. So in that story, they did see the characters. Uh, and at that point, the stone was brought to a book bindery. And we have testimony from 1935 from the son of the book bindery's owner who confirmed seeing the stone as a boy. Uh, but also that someone had carved their initials JM into the stone and that it had no other markings on it at all, which is kind of a different description than most people would say. He said it was used as a weight and a beating stone for making books and that the stone was left behind when the shop closed in 1919. Uh, also, certain accounts mention the inscription on the stone at one point being translated out to read, quote, 40 feet below 2 million pounds lie buried. But images of the symbols that made up the ciphertext first publicly appeared in a book from 1949, so much later than the stone was like a thing. And that book was called True Tales of Buried Treasure, decades after the markings had allegedly worn away. Uh, since then, many people have come looking for the treasure with mixed to inconclusive findings, with nine people reported to have lost their lives in the process. And to this day, the mystery remains very much alive. So let's look at a couple theories and then we'll touch briefly on the TV show that's still airing as of right now, where they've been digging on the island for nine straight seasons. Uh, <laughs> talk about nine seasons. Uh, yeah, it's no it's no lie. Man. They've been going. Uh, so first, here is a nice historical theory about what the deal is with the Oak Island, assuming that the treasure is indeed a real thing and not just some old creepypasta. Assuming there is a treasure, this is a theory that kind of explains whose treasure that could be. It's a story about a 17th century English explorer called William Phipps, who had just found a Spanish shipwreck uh, that they pulled $4 million worth of 2022 dollars $4 million worth of treasure out of the out of the ship just on their first dive down there in like 1685. Uh, however, when King William III and the Protestants of England, King William III of Netherlands and Protestants of England plotted to overthrow the Catholic English King James II, they needed money to do that. So they asked Phipps, yo, will you like go back up to that ship and see if you can't grab some more stuff uh, for us to pay for this? like coup with and he agreed to do it because he also hated King James II for being really strict against his beloved Massachusetts colony even after giving tons of treasure in tribute so he was like a New England type of guy yeah you don't fuck with Boston yeah exactly so the story goes that he did dive down to the ship again and he did recover enough treasure to fund the eventual overthrowing of King James in 1688 which is also known as say it with me historians the glorious revolution uh, but the story also goes that after that was all said and done, there was way more treasure left and that Phipps actually sailed up uh, to Canada to hide it for safekeeping where else but on Oak Island. 
according to the theory, in the process of sealing the main shaft, an underground tunnel collapsed and flooded the whole thing with water. And apparently Phipps was just like, shit, fuck. And he like sealed it back up and went back to England uh, to the now nice Protestant friendly crown and was like, hey, we have a problem. And the new Protestant crown sent down like engineer secret engineer squads uh, to like see if they could excavate it and get it back out of the hole until they finally gave up all the way in 1750 and ended up booby trapping the hole before they left. So nobody else could have the treasure either. Which is crazy. <laughs> of course. In support of that theory, the curse of Oak Island TV show has dug up an English 16th to 17th century pickaxe from the site. They Did have- they dig it up, though, again? Or was it then put there and then they showed it on that, camera? Look, I can't. We can't start going into the fake news areas of this. <laughs> Reality TV is filled everything falls with apart fake if shit. we start to say everything's fake. You know what I mean? But according well, according I mean, to like the History Channel and according right, to the show, okay, all right, they they did find a 16th and 17th century pick, pickaxe from the site. A bunch of wood pieces, carbon dated from that time. European and Middle Eastern human bones dating back to that time. And they took core samples of the swamp on Oak Island, which suggested that human activity uh, occurred on the island between 1674 and 1700, which, again, fits into the time frame of the story. However, people aren't widely convinced. And in fact, in 2020, a retired geologist called Stephen Aitken had an alternate theory, which is that the money pit probably does not exist at all. Inspired by the show, which lost him when they didn't do nearly enough geological surveying, he started doing his own research on the island, pulling consulting reports from the 60s and 70s from 60s and 70s from Warnock, Hershey and Golder Associates, as well as one from 1995 by Woods Hole Oceanogra- Oceanographic Institution to reveal a network of sinkholes and cave like cavities in the bedrock across the island. And here's a quote from that man for Jesse to read about his findings. Uh, which will be And you got to keep going. We need a season 10. You never know when they're actually going to no, still airing you know? right now. That's so that, yeah. good. Good. It should. They might find something next time. Well, given the right conditions, such as temperature, pressure, pore fluid composition, uh, quite often these minerals, especially gypsum, are prone to dissolution. They are not man-made. They're naturally formed features. They take sometimes thousands, even millions of years to form. To me personally, the treasure on Oak Island has already been found in the form of archaeological artifacts that have been discovered. As a collection, these artifacts tell a rich history about activity on the island that could be logging, farming, military operation, even shipbuilding and repair. To me, the treasure were the friends we made all along. No, that's not what it says. It says, to me, that's the treasure. Yeah. A sensible opinion from a sensible man who did something like look at the receipts and decide maybe this is just how this island is and that people are just digging in a hole that has some stuff in it because the whole island has some stuff in it because it's a historical island. Uh, lastly, I said I was going to cover the show uh, for you. I'm not really going to cover it, but here you go. I wanted to give you guys this really quick. It's a link to a website on the history like website, like homepage. And it is an interactive map that like shows everything that has been found since the show was on. And I, I'll, you guys can see this at home too, but uh, just look down the list and see if anything jumps out. Like, I don't know, like there's, there's, they've actually found a surprising amount of stuff. I didn't realize that. I did Google real quick. Like, did they actually find things? And like, yeah, they found things. Just none of it would be considered actual treasure. Yeah. It's all things that like, 
There's a gold brooch. I mean, yeah, I'm looking at this. Brooch. Yeah, there's a there's a garnet pin. Like, but again, these are all things that if you did a search of any high traffic shipping lane area island, you could probably find random loot. You know what I mean? Like, this is there's treasures everywhere, <clears throat> and I understand that. But also, it's a TV show, and I don't know what. I think that's its biggest problem for me. Is this is a TV show. How do you keep nine seasons worth of content? We have to find something. I did watch like four seasons of this show before I was like, uh, okay. And there have been accusations (laughs) that they play stuff. I can't. I'm sure. I can't speak. I can't. I obviously can't speak to that. But look, the moment, the, the, the day I'll start trusting TV shows again is when ghost shows don't have scary music. You know what I mean? Like. Once I mean, ghost shows, yeah, once once so. a TV show can be on the air where the ghost show doesn't have scary music playing under it, and they're totally fine with not finding anything, then I will start to believe everything wholesale that I see on cable television again. Uh, but that is the curse of Oak Island. There's there are some things. There's some interesting stuff. There's gold. They, they found like in season eight, they found signs that there was like a dump truck load of silver underground somewhere. They go diving and they keep finding like shiny gold things in the water that they can't get out. There may be something there, but I, you know, it's the, it's a mystery. That's the whole, that's the whole deal. It's a mystery. Uh, I mean, look, they, they, they certainly have found <laughs> interesting things. Like one of these things I'm looking at is literally a Roman pylum, like the, the shaft of a spear. So, I mean, like, that's interesting. That's right. Like, what was that doing there? Yeah, that's neat. How could a Roman pylum even get there? That's crazy. That's what I'm saying. I think that's way more interesting than like, we found 80 tons of silver. Like, no, you didn't. Yeah. Prove it. I'm sure it goes, like you said too, Jesse, it's probably like trade, trade routes, things moving back and yeah, forth. Yeah, I mean, Maybe where like the, it is. A guard of a ship or something lost a spear, which is fucking cool. Yeah. And that's the Oak Island Money Pit, number 13 of 22. <laughs> uh, number 14 is called Dirty Pictures. Uh, this one was conceived of as another listicle after I did the Disneyland deaths episode for a couple mm-hmm. of months ago, uh, but it wasn't chunky enough on its own. So taking a big left turn from stuffy old things like murder cults and Canadian history, let's throw the millennials about talk about dirty urban legends in Disney movies. Uh, Can we before we yeah, continue, sure. I was thinking this episode, instead of it calling it like part two, three or whatever, why don't we call it part one of medium mysteries? These are medium sized, medium sized medium medium mysteries. mysteries? You know? OK, yeah. Medium mysteries. It doesn't flow as well as mini mysteries, honestly. You know, well, I you know they're to be smaller than today. regular mysteries, which is why I call them mini in the first place. What right, if we yeah, call yeah. it? Alex's average adventures. <laughs> average adventures. <laughs> what if we call them? Alex is really milking this, isn't he? <laughs> What do you guys think of that? I think people are loving this, actually. Yeah. Air. Um, Air. Uh, uh, Attack on Titan. Air. Yeah. Alex is really. Air. <laughs> yeah. uh, no. Okay. Uh, this is mini mystery number 14 of 22. Dirty pictures. Uh, this is Disney urban legends. I'm going to try and do it chronologically. Here we go. When the 1977 film The Rescuers is the one about the mice detectives was re-released on home video in early January of 1999. It was recalled only five days later because allegedly about 38 minutes into the movie as Bianca and Bernard ride through the city in a sardine can on the back of the Albatross on the Albatross air charter service in two non-consecutive frames, first bottom left and next top center. 
you really can see a photograph of a real person topless, a woman through the window of a building in the background. Deadass in the actual movie, you can see this like a photograph of a naked lady. According to Disney, these frames were in the original 1977 theatrical release of the film, but were not inserted by the animators, but rather during post-production, citing the fact that the previous 1992 home video release of the movie didn't include the frames, but that when they went back and made the 1999 version, they, not thinking, went back for the old version and got those two titty frames back in the movie by accident. So they recalled them and reprinted them without the titty frames. Uh, but it was totally there, and you can totally see the pictures online if you look for them. That one is Snopes real. That one's real. Uh, rescuers, titties are real. Up next, we got two separate dirty stories from The Little Mermaid. Uh, so let's start with the one most uh, people have probably heard of. Yep, the penis. Uh, during the release of the home video version, a Disney artist, this is the story, uh, who was pissed after finding out they'd been laid off redrew that castle in the promotional art for the movie to include a spire that it looks exactly like a cock and balls front and center in the middle of the picture. That's the yep. alleged story. The, don't don't lay off your artists until they're completely done yeah. with their work. But the truth is, while yes, it does exist and does undoubtedly look like a penis, that spire has been around since the beginning, even in ads for the movie's original theatrical run. Ooh. And it wasn't done by a Disney employee at all but rather an artist who did a bunch of the little mermaids marketing images and just drew the castle, which honestly looks pretty penisy in general. If you look at the whole castle, yes. it's just like really it absolutely penisy does. little castle, man. That is, I'm looking at the picture, man. And that is just, that doesn't look like a dick. That is a, a rock hard, ready to fuck dick. Yeah. With it looks like, like a dildo. lumps yeah. in it and everything. Yeah. Uh, apparently he just drew it during crunch at four in the morning without really taking a step back and looking at what he drew. And that's the explanation. <laughs> in fact, that's it wasn't, it wasn't even really a big deal. Like I say, this was in the original 89, like movie theater poster, but it wasn't a big deal until years later when it quickly got mentioned in entertainment weekly. And some lady in Arizona made a complaint to her local supermarket about the dick which resulted in them pulling the movie from shelves for like a day. And then eventually the art was edited halfway through the print run of the Laserdisc edition in 1998 or the 1998 Laserdisc version, the second print run of it, they changed it. Uh, and then Disney doesn't use that image at all anymore. Like if you go look at yeah. Disney plus, or you look at the Blu-ray of little mermaid, the Dick castle is not anywhere because now people see it and they just think about the Dick. Um, when Snopes interviewed the artist, he confirmed that he didn't even realize he'd drawn a dick at all until almost 10 years later when someone from his church group heard about it on the radio and called him. Uh, so that's the first Little Mermaid mystery. The other man, yeah. I don't know. Look at that dick, Jesse. Do you think he did that accidentally? No, that's a purposeful dick. This is why looking looking right right you're like the official story is wrong. This is a conspiracy. That's like. <laughs> that's yes, notable. It is a good no. That's Put that a, in the Shilmanai wiki. Yeah, that it. Look, I'm, I was about to spoil what I'm sure is about to be a, f a future thing you're about to say, but like, there's a lot of this. Disney oh, filled yeah. with pervs. Yeah. Uh, when Snopes interviewed the art. Oh no, I already, I already said that. The other, the other Little Mermaid legend, which alleges that during the wedding of Prince Eric and Ursula, the first wedding in the movie, when Ursula is Vanessa and she has Ariel's voice. Yes. There is side shots of a little hobbit sized minister bishop looking guy officiating their wedding. Uh, and apparently it shows that he had some kind of little hobbit sized boner action going on in his pants during the wedding. Uh, and in fact, 
This story became one of the major stories like this, thanks to an attempted 1995 Disney boycott that was carried out by the very conservative and very Christian American Life League, in which they blasted the media with all kinds of half-baked stories like this in the same shocking way PETA does kind of now today to just like draw eyes to their cause that they might not normally get. You know, they just do, they kind of like address things that aren't necessarily the biggest issues to try and drum up support for the organization in general. Uh, But in reality, here's a quote from Mathis to read from the Little Mermaid animator Tom Saito or Sito from an interview about what was actually going on there. So here's here's Mathis. It's his knees. The joke was he's a little man standing on a box when and his robes, his big bishop robes are draped over everything. So they're covering his whole body and people are just seeing what they want to see. Yeah. And actually, if you look at the rest of the images of the priest in that scene there's other images where you actually can see that they are his little knobby little popeye arm knees yeah there's a top down shot where you can see his legs are separate you see his little popcorn knees for sure but But they could have drew a defining line like or something all right uh now let's talk about briefly about aladdin uh and specifically a scene in aladdin where kids okay so aladdin's dressed as prince ali he has flown up to jasmine's balcony this is like him trying to be like hey i'm not like a fucking weirdo i'm like a real dude uh only to be accosted by jasmine's bullshit detecting tiger raja who does not have any time for his fake bullshit uh and according to the urban legend at the point where the scene cuts away there's like jasmine and aladdin and the tiger up on the deck and then it cuts to like below the balcony and and genie and carpet are like talking to each other about him but the dialogue for Aladdin still is like kind of going quietly in the background while they're talking. And it's during that point while they're in the background that you can hear something like a voice saying, good teenagers, take off your clothes. Uh, and I have a, I have a quote. I have a clip of it here for you guys to watch. Right, so you right. guys can tell me it's a very short clip. You have to it, listen. It definitely. Yeah. I'll, uh, it has the vibe of. Uh, when you hear a thing and it says, uh, TikTok does this all the time now where it's like a weird phrase. It's like, and then the top of it says, I am Charles in charge. And then the bottom one, it's like, listen to it again. The bottom one says, my name is Stephen Merchant. This is like like 95% of all like ghost EVPs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think the original line was supposed to be something like, good kitty get up and go or something like that like where he's pushing the cat off yes i think it, but you're right it 100 if you listen to it and you have it in your head it 100 sounds like he's being like now take off them clothes yeah it's, yeah oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. and according to snopes like like jesse just said this story is false uh but here's a quote i made for jesse to read about it which is actually two quotes one from tom nice. cito and one from rick rhodes from disney pr which i mixed into one quote so that it was easier to understand great the two animators were doing that sequence. The two animators who were doing that sequence are both like very religious guys. That's not their sense of humor. If somebody is seeing something, eh, that's their perception. There's nothing there. Aladdin's line is scat. Good tiger. Take off and go. All yeah. right, pretty close. So yeah, good teenagers take oh, off I their don't clothes. I like the fact that he said scat good tiger. I'm not a fan yeah, of that. That's a weird line. Like he's, saying like good tiger. he's saying like good tiger, you know, like. Scat, good tiger. 
I don't know how scat turns into good teenagers. Ta- good time to take. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, also, a uh, bonus quote for Mathis to read regarding another unrelated uh, urban legend about Aladdin. Uh, this is a quote from Gavin McInnes, founder of the neo-fascist white supremacist far right terror group Proud Boys. Well, I'm sure this will be Ooh. incredibly insightful and absolutely worth it. We're called Proud Boys because I went to one of my kids music recitals. And some ponts got up there, and while everyone's playing the piano and the violin and doing stuff they tried, he gets up and goes, proud of your boy. I'll make you proud of your boy. It's some song from Aladdin. And I was looking around for the dad because I thought there's no way this dad is proud of his boy. And of course, he was the child of a single mom. Duh. His mother told him, yes, sing a song. That's a talent. And there was no dad to say, no, you're not. Play the piano for Christ's sake. Isn't he delightful, folks? What a what a nice man Isn't who was delightful? probably extremely supportive of all of his children. Not at all piece of yeah. shit. But he did name Proud Boys after a fucking cut song from the Broadway show of Aladdin. So lick my nuts. Uh, anyway, just a few more. Uh, up next, we got one from The Lion King, which I think you probably already heard of. Uh, also, where a ways into the film, there's the scene where Timon and Pumbaa are laying on their backs with adult Simba. And they're like looking at the stars. And there's that thing about... I think they're all balls of gas or whatever. And Timon's like, that's bullshit, you dumbass. And then Simba is feeling kind of emo. So he gets up and he walks over to a cliff by himself and he plops down in the dust. And according to the Mm -hmm. legend, in the cloud of dust that pops up, you can just make out the word sex hidden among the particles before they all float away. And really, if you look online, there's plenty of clips of it. Here's an image of the sequence for you guys with the letters highlighted so you guys can see that it really does look like it says it in the actual movie. They hide, they drew over it, obviously, uh, in that third frame to show you where the letters are supposed to be. But it really does look like it says sex in the in the smoke there. It, it definitely, it has... Kind of like a sex vibe to it, but if you didn't include the SEX that was drawn on in the in the frame there, I wonder if it could say something else. You know what I mean? Like, yes, yes I, I'm right there with you. Uh, and according to Tom Cito, the animator is a hidden message. It is just a harmless in-joke, however, and this is a quote for Jesse. There you go. Uh, it doesn't say ah, sex. Yep. It says special effects. It's SFX. I would. I it, to me, it looked like CFX, but like whatever, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's just the own. animators being like, "Yo, special effects." Because I think this was right before the Mufasa scene. I believe the like F- Mufasa in the sky scene. If I'm getting the movies pacing right, I can't remember. And I think that's like one of the biggest effect shots in the movie. So maybe it's like a little intro signature by them. Speaking uh, of Mufasa, have yeah. you seen the poster? For the I gotta King? find this. I gotta find oh, this. Oh, bent over lady. Yeah, with the underwear. Yeah, delightful, delightful. Uh, <laughs> finally, I got one more, a much mod- more modern one. Uh, here's a TikTok for you guys to watch real quick. Just load a it up. TikTok. Give me the play-by-play. Ooh. Do not read the Ooh, title. It's like the, I'm 22. Yeah. Do not read the yeah. title of the TikTok. It will spoil it. But just get, let me know what's happening as you watch it. All right. So please do more. Someone is showing us Beauty and the Beast, and now it's like a dude, and he's all like emotional. Oh, this is like a man in black alien in the background. <laughs> what? That's the end of it, I guess. Uh, wait, what? That's not real. It's what? a guy who's watching Beauty and the Beast, and he sees Slender Man in the ballroom scene of of uh, <laughs> Beauty and the Beast. But I was just kidding. That's not a real mystery. That's just a guy okay. on TikTok. 
And it was just me showing you how easy it is now that we have CG at our fingertips to just fake everything and how impossible it is. I was about to say, that's... Yeah. I'm, I'm surprised, Alex Fasciani, you did not mention my favorite Disney uh, dirty bit. Is it Jessica Rabbit's snooch? It 100% is, my man. I, 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 I judged that because it was a co-production that it didn't count. But mm. apparently, according to the stories, there really was a picture of her snooch in the movie that yeah. they had to go back and fix. Yep. Uh, in, the scene where she's, in the scene where she like flips out of Benny. Yeah, uh, when like Benny's driving spins out, cra- out of the yeah. car and her yeah. legs are like facing straight out. There's a moment where the camera turns and it is like you. I don't know if it's available to see anymore. I'm sure there's somewhere on YouTube. It has it somewhere. Yeah. I don't know if you do. Yeah. But let me tell you, it was a real thing way. But like 25 years ago, that it was a real thing. Yeah. And and since we're talking about Roger Rabbit and people are probably thinking about this, there's another big uh, Roger Rabbit urban legend that's fake. Which is that Daffy Duck and Donald Duck are doing a scene together, and the urban legend is that Donald Duck calls Daffy Duck the N-word. Damn. Oh my god. And, and if you listen to it, it really does sound like it, but there is I I've I am I am to these days there's nothing left to surprise me in the world. But if in Roger Rabbit Donald Duck called Daffy Duck the N-word. There is something crazy going on. There's no uh, way that they would ever write that. And that would make it through all the checks and balances of making a huge movie like this. And they would leave it in the movie. And I believe that there is evidence that says whatever it is that Donald really says. But right. it is a very famous one. And I, I only looked at it briefly because I decided Roger Rabbit didn't. There care. are many. Like, there are so yeah. many. And that's just... You know, look, y'all perverts is what it means. It means that deep down inside, that Puritan repression has gotten to us. Yeah. And they want one that, day. Listen, everybody's after that perfect vibration sequence, <laughs> that, that perfect vibration <laughs> when frequency. I am your emperor. Everyone shall have vibration sequencing. It wilds me out that like a lot of kids are like, fuck, like get rid of sex in movies. Who needs it? It's just weird. Like it's it's just weird to me that like young people, like when I was a kid, the young kids wanted to be dirty, crazy. You know what I mean? Like when people advertise stuff to us, it was like the nineties. Everybody was like, yeah, don't get slime on you or blood. Whoa. And now, and now kids are like, we would prefer not to have the sex. Thank you very much. I, I don't, I mean, I think about that, but then I think about shows like euphoria, which definitely are like, Oh yeah. 21 year olds watching. Oh yeah. That's like, skins. You know? that's like that. That's like some other, like that's, I feel like the people who watch that, they like want to be in that situation. No, one hundred percent agree. I think they want their think, real lives to have that kind of drama in it. I don't know. I'm not gonna. Oh, yes, I'm not trying to make yeah. broad sweeping generalizations about people who watch shows that I no, don't watch. No, I, I, I. It's just like that show that came out where it was like the woman who wrote books, but like it was about like yeah, no, about a better relationship than Talking the one that she married my husband. <laughs> no, there was like murder a show that came wrote. out last year where like the lady was writing a book, I think, about her like past lovers and, and her husband was like, you're writing this book. Anybody like is. And I was like, Oh no, this show just exists for like the lonely housewife. Who's just over her marriage, but like <laughs> is still committed to, you know, the whole yeah. union. Yeah. And I was like, Oh yes, broad, I know what this show generalizations is. about the exact person who watches those shows. Uh, yeah. So if we're going to make sweeping generalizations, I'm down to do that at any point in time. Well, this just is like the people who watch, uh, show. Yeah. Yeah. yeah people yeah. who watch this podcast. 
very smart. Uh, that's all we've like, got uh, is broad generalizations in this yeah, field. But if you listen to the podcast, not as smart as those who watch it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's real. People who can watch this podcast, very smart. Oh, yeah. Incredibly. The three of us geniuses. who can actually see us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very yeah, smart. Very Everyone else, like, smart. Elevated geniuses. But oh, not as... The people- and the people who make it to the live shows, they are extremely very, very, very as well because they get to see us as well. Smarter so. than all of them, people who go to patreon.com slash pod. It's true. Uh, that was number 14, Dirty Pictures. Number 15 out of 22 is the- Is this still going? It's still going. Oh my God. This is The Irishman. If you like The Irishman, yeah. the, the Scorsese film. Yeah. And, and if you, and like Mathis, listen, have you not can seen The Irishman. You get me to watch yeah. like an hour and a half movie. There is no way in my goddamn life I'm going to sit down and watch a four hour boring ass mafia it was movie good. from a man who thinks only his movies are It art. was pretty good. If you, like Mathis, have not seen The Irishman, though, which is a line that I confidently wrote in my script without knowing whether or not you'd actually seen it. You are dead yeah. on correct, Let sir. me catch you up with the rest of our listeners who have seen The Irishman. Number one. Robert De Niro looks pretty good de-aged, but the illusion completely falls apart when he has to do any tough guy stuff, especially at a wide angle. He looks like an old man. It sucks. Second, the movie is about an old hitman um, who worked for the mob in New England and offers the theory that this hitman may have had something to do with the death of a real person from American history called Jimmy Hoffa. Ah. Now, long story, very short. It was 1975, and Jimmy Hoffa was vying for his spot at the top of the Teamsters Union again after serving a prison sentence after being convicted for jury tampering in 1964. Basically, the vibe was he was an old dog who didn't really realize he was finished, and when he tried to get his old job back, it pissed off a lot of people, including allegedly his longtime friend, Anthony Provenzano, a.k.a. New Jersey Mafia boss, Tony Pro. So... The story goes, Hoffa headed out to Bloomfield Township in Michigan on July 30th, 1975, for a meeting with Provenzano and someone else at a restaurant called The Moccas Red Fox. But when he got there, nobody was there, and a few witnesses at the scene say they saw him there that day outside of the restaurant and that he got into the back of a car and drove away, but that was the last time anybody ever saw Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, And in the wake of this, Tons of people were interviewed and interrogated inside the mob and out. And originally the one place everything kept coming back to was an 87 acre landfill in New Jersey that was known locally as brother Moscato's dump after the part owner, Phil Moscato. Uh, So one guy, a teamster FBI informant called Ralph Picardo, who met with Provenzano while he was in prison, said that Tony Pro told him that he was going to go kill Hoffa as early as 1974, and that after it went down, the body was taken to New Jersey on a truck that was only his guess that it ended up at Moscato's dump, since he didn't know exactly where they hid the body. He was just guessing because he knew that it was going to New Jersey, that it was probably going to the dump where they dump bodies a lot, yada, yada, yada. However, Another anonymous source said he overheard two mobsters in Philly talking about how the feds would hit pay dirt if they dig at the dump in New Jersey. So in 1975, going off those two tips that corroborated each other, the FBI searched the dump on a warrant for an unrelated missing persons case, uh, though in reality, they were really hoping to find Jimmy Hoffa there, which doesn't seem that above board, but I guess they were really desperate to find Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah. The Jimmy Hoffa story is interesting just in general, obviously for at this point in time too. um, like at this point in time in our lives, so many people have claimed to have killed him. I heard another mobster claim the reason we haven't found a body is because what they did is they put him in a barrel, set him on fire, put a bunch of cement in and tossed it in the water. And it's like, good fucking luck. Like a ton of people like claim, same thing with the JFK assassination. 
so many people claim, right. which one day I'm sure Alex will do. But like one day that it's like a, a thousand different groups of people also claim that. So it's like so hard to, yeah. to I feel like figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Right? And that's kind of the deal with Jimmy Hoffa. And that's the far as as far as it ever got, because uh, in the end, they came up with nothing. Uh, but the reason that this mystery is even on my list right now is because in November of last year, uh, 2021, the New York Times ran a story reporting that the FBI were gathered around, quote, a plot of dirt and gravel the size of a Little League diamond below the Pulaski Skyway on October 25th and 26th to conduct a site survey. Apparently, on the word of a guy who used to work there, who said on his deathbed that he buried the body 15 feet underground in a steel drum, along with tons of other decoy drums and trash, though apparently it's a little bit more complicated than that. According to the New York Times, this guy, Frank Coppola, who was a teenager at the time in 1975, saw his father, Paul Coppola, who worked there at the dump, talking with Phil Moscato, the owner of the dump, his partner who also owned the dump, and some shady visitors who stepped out of a black limousine. And they were talking nervously about where they were going to do something. And he recalled his father getting angry about everybody pointing and saying, now the whole world's going to know and stuff like that. This memory stuck in Frank's brain for years. And he always thought about it and it stuck with him and he just relived that memory over and over, wondering what the hell was going on with his dad that day until 2008 when his father, who was nearing death, told him what happened finally and to share it with people at the right time. Apparently, the people in the limousine were there to arrange for the burial of Jimmy Hoffa's body, which was on its way over at that moment. And then it was Paul's job, his dad, to actually do the burying of Jimmy Hoffa. And here is the quote from Frank notari- uh, Frank's notarized letter for Mathis to read right now. This is a quote from the son. My father was upset with Mr. Moscato for pointing to that area of the landfill because the dump was constantly under police scrutiny. Unidentified people brought Hoffa's dead body to PJP and because of the awkward position of Hoffa's corpse after they removed him from, from whatever container he was in before... They were unable to place him feet first in a 55-gallon steel drum retrieved at PJP. So they put him in the drum head first. My father, who didn't trust anybody, decided to dig a second hole with a company excavator and to place Hoffa in in that location and place something detectable just under the surface of the gravesite, which I am willing to disclose to law enforcement. Yeah, so this was a big deal. Um, But... Frank Coppola, the son, is now also dead. He died in 2020 of respiratory illness in March of 2020. And we only have the letter because he left it with a journalist Mm. called Dan Moldea, who specializes in the case and has written 10 books about the case, who said that the FBI contacted him in 2020 and who visited the site himself with Fox News ground team and used penetrating radar on the ground to reveal shapes underneath that did resemble barrels. So that's what's going on. Uh, We're all waiting to hear this. Just again, this just happened in November late October. We're waiting to hear if the FBI actually went under there, what the results of their survey were, if they're ever going to publish them. Uh, But in the meantime, let's quickly check out some of the various other theories about what happened to Jimmy Hoffa and where he might be now. Hoffa served time in prison with a self-proclaimed mafia hitman named Charles Allen, who not only said he was Hoffa's bodyguard while they served time together in jail, but that Tony Provenzano actually had his body, quote, ground up in little pieces, shipped to Florida and thrown in a swamp. Uh, But nobody could really confirm or check anything out because there's no real reason to believe Alan other than to take him at his word. Another hitman and the subject of the movie The Irishman was a man called Frank Sheeran. 
He said he killed Hoffa at a specific house in Detroit, uh, but Bloomfield Township police feel differently. They tore up floorboards of the house at the, at the address where he said he killed Jimmy Hoffa. And while they did find blood underneath the floorboards, it did not belong to Jimmy Hoffa. So maybe I don't know what the deal is there, but maybe Frank Sheeran accidentally actually killed somebody else there or something. Mm. I would imagine <laughs> maybe he just got his murders Mob confused. Man. You know, I don't know. Uh, but that's his story. And that's what the Irishman is about, among other things. It's not just about Jimmy Hoffa, but. It's a good movie. It's worth watching. Uh, and then there's a story from yet another third hit, hitman, a man called Donald Tony the Greek Francos, who did a notorious interview with Playboy magazine in 1989, where he claimed that Hoffa was buried under Section 107 of Giant Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey, before subsequently going into witness protection. However, despite how popular this theory is, the FBI have never really taken it seriously because that dude was a hell of a liar and in fact did not even show up to check it out when they knocked the stadium down in 2010. Here's a quote from FBI agent Jim Kostler about that for Jesse to read right now. Bam. When that information came to our attention, we batted it around, but we were all convinced in the end that this guy was not reliable. Were we able to prove to our mind that uh, what he was telling us couldn't have happened because he either couldn't have been there or he was in jail at the time? Yeah. So that's the big famous theory about Jimmy Hoffa being buried under Giant Stadium. It's like basically just a lie from a weird guy. Um, and that Who is and that, that is the deal with Jimmy Hoffa. Nobody knows where the fuck that guy is buried. He's one of the great long lasting American mysteries about a single mysterious person. Um, yeah. So now. Let's head back to Nova Scotia, Canada one last time for another what? slightly more recent mystery, uh, number 16 of 22. Maybe this is the last one we're going to do today. It's it's called Jerome. And I do mean classic. Jerome I do mean mystery. slightly more recent than Oak Island because oh, no. this one takes place all the way back. Uh, uh, takes us all the way back. Beautiful Sandy Shores of Sandy Cove, Digby County in August of 1863. Uh, six years after the publication of the story about Oak Island. So same basic time frame, little more recent. Apparently, one day, an eight-year-old boy was walking along the shore, minding his own business, when he came up uh, to a youngish adult man, about 30 years old, with no legs uh, below the knee and obvious signs of exposure, who seemed to be trying to roll himself into the ocean to drown himself. Uh, eventually, the boy's family came and took him home with them to Digby Neck, which was the name of his village, and found out he spoke no English or any words at all, really. So they just did what people do a lot, apparently, was just just ask him what his name is anyway, and whatever sounds he makes, it sounded like Jerome to them, so he became Jerome. Uh, when they asked him where he was from, he said something like Columbo, but nobody knows what that meant. And when they asked him what happened to his legs, he said, cool. Nobody knows what, what that means. Cool. <laughs> yeah, what? Yeah. What? He didn't say like, cool, man, but something that to them sounded like the word cool. But most of the time people said he he growled like an animal and grunted like an animal and did not speak a language. Uh, but the mystery was there. Everybody was like, what the fuck? Columbo, cool, Jerome, I'm in. He was the talk of the town, uh, but but he hated it. Uh, apparently people used to come by the house all the time to gawk at him uh, at the Albright house in Digby neck where he was, uh, with the, with the Albright family, uh, people would come by and he would growl at them like a dog. And then, uh, when they got to examining him properly, some things about him started to seem really strange. Like for example, his amputations were like extremely fresh, 
like they were done by the hands of a very like good surgeon. He still had the dressings on his legs uh, and uh, nobody could get anything out of him about it. So they just ignored it. And uh, after a while of him just being in this village, they decided, you know what? He's probably a Catholic. So they shipped him off to the Acadians. <laughs> the most embarrassed. Yeah. They just got rid God. of him. They were like, yeah, let's, you know what? Let's just toss him to the Acadians uh, in Metagon, which is like a little bit south. Um, and he was taken in by a Corsican Canadian, Jean Nicola, who like tested him on like five other languages, which he could not speak. Uh, and Jean Nicola and his daughter, his stepdaughter, Madeleine, and his wife, Juliette, Juliette uh, took care of Jerome for seven more years. And uh, for their service in taking care of an amputee, received $2 a week from the government, which is nice. Uh, but once Juliette died, he went to live with the Como family, where he lived out the rest of his days, allowing the Comos to collect money from people who wanted to come look at him on top of the government stipend, until he finally died an elderly man years later, 50 years later, in April of 1912, never learning to communicate with more than a few grunts, and nevertheless becoming an extremely famous local legend, even to this day. Uh, huh. No one ever learned who he was, but there are plenty of theories. One was that he was an heir who was cut out of the family in an inheritance plot. Of course. Another was that he was a mutineer who was punished by mutilating and being abandoned. Uh, you're just going to say he was a mutant. I, yeah, he was, he was Wolverine from the X-Men. Uh, with regard to his issues with language, some researchers have claimed that an injury uh, in the Broca's area of the brain, which regulates speech, could create the strange sort of manner in which he tried to communicate, but it didn't sound like words. It's possible, um, which is kind of a interesting idea. But uh, in 2008, there was another big theory that people really latched onto. It was a new book that was published by a local Nova Scotian historian called Fraser Mooney Jr., who discovered that around the same time in 1859, across, if you know how... Nova Scotia is it's like a big long island that looks kind of like I don't know kind of like it's long and it goes it has like two coasts one like where there's water and then the rest of Canada and then one that's like water in the open ocean on the other side if you can understand what I'm saying so across the inner bay from Nova Scotia to New Brunswick which is called the Bay of Fundy there is a place in New Brunswick which is just across the water that's called Chipman and this historian found out that in Chipman uh, just a few years before, there was a story of a foreign man who fell through the river ice, got gangrene in both his legs, and eventually had to have them amputated. Uh, people in New Brunswick called this man Gamby instead of Jerome, which, according to this theory, comes from the fact that Gamba in Italian is leg. And that's probably what he was yelling about when he came out of his fucking stupor from having gangrene and getting his legs cut Interesting. off. Interesting. And apparently the whole situation, similar to how it went down in Digby Neck, it started to become a burden on the people of Chipman in a way where eventually they just decided to ship the guy up the river to a place called St. John, uh, where somebody paid a passing American schooner captain $10 to dispose of the guy, which allegedly he did by dropping him on the beach at Sandy Cove. Uh, and apparently that does jive with some stuff that people say, like there's a witness that said that a schooner was on its way out to sea at the time that they found uh, Jerome on the on the beach. 
which normally wouldn't be that big of a deal. But like thinking about it that way, being like, oh, maybe there was a schooner that had like just dropped him off. Just dropped him off. Yeah. yeah. And Interesting. then there was also a story of a merchant from Metagon, which was the Acadian place, who said that Jerome told him after talking to him for a really long time and just trying to get stuff out of him. Yes. No. That type of thing said that Jerome told him that he came from the Adriatic coast of Italy. Which would explain the Gamba leg situation and even maybe yeah. like Colombo and cool. You know, I don't know exactly mm. what that is, but those could all be Italian sounds. I hate that they called this man Gamby. Yeah. It's <laughs> this rough. man lost his legs and he's calling out for his legs. They're like, calm down, Gamby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gamba, 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 Gamby. All right. You're yeah. playing. Got it. Your name's Gamby. Uh, Come on. Gamby. Gamby. We're going to yeah. sit you around. You can live your life. Yeah. And that is the story of Jerome of Sandy Cove. And coincidentally, nobody could have predicted this, but it is also the end of the first episode of the year 2022. Many mysteries. Of Alex's average adventure. <laughs> Many mysteries. Part two of two. Part one of two. The most, Thank you. Absolutely the clearest naming we've ever had for Breaking any episode dawn. series. Yeah. Two twos. One two is done. We're in the first half of two halves of the second two. You guys get it. 2022. Yeah, yeah. So it's part, 2022. Part, yeah, you guys get it. We had part one, part one, and part one, part two, and now we're on part two, part one, to next week will be part two, part two. Yeah. It's part too much part is what 22. it is. Hey, oh, 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 what on that, everybody? We got to go record a mini-sode for y'all at <laughs> patreon.com slash IlluminatiPod. Thank you, Alex, for another. Canada. Goodbye. Go, and on that, goodbye. Goodbye. Anyway, me and my wife were sitting outside indulging on our porch one night, enjoying ourselves. I needed to go to the bathroom, so I stepped back inside, and after a few moments, I hear my wife go, Holy shit, get out here! So I quickly dash back outside, and she's looking up at the sky in awe. I look up too, and there's a perfect line of dozen lights traveling across the sky. 